0: As in all ages of history, youth today are faced with making many important and far-reaching decisions. President Spencer W. Kimball has announced that the Church has need of more missionaries. He declared that the time has come now when we should lengthen our stride and change our sights and raise our goals. As President Kimball issued this challenge in April 1974, he said, Today, we have 18,600 missionaries. The members accepted this challenge. Today, we have in excess of 21,000. He then said, We can send more, many more. When I ask for more missionaries, I am not asking for more testimony, barren or unworthy missionaries. Young people will understand that it is a great privilege to go on a mission and that they must be physically well, mentally well, spiritually well, and that the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. As the President continued, he said, The question is frequently asked, should every young man fill a mission? And the answer has been given by the Lord, he said. It is yes. Every young man should fill a mission. In addition to filling a mission, President Kimball pointed out, every man should also pay his tithing. Every man should observe the Sabbath. Every man should attend his meetings. Every man should marry in the temple and properly train his children and do many other mighty works. Of course he should. He does not always do it. As the president continued, he said, We realize that while all men definitely should, all men are not prepared to teach the gospel abroad. Far too many men arrive at missionary age quite unprepared to go on a mission. Of course they should, should not be sent, but they should all be prepared. There are physically few unfit to do missionary work. There are far too many unfit emotionally and mentally and morally because they have not kept their lives clean. And in harmony with the spirit of missionary work, they should have been prepared, should, But since they have broken the laws, they may have to be deprived. And thereon hangs one of our greatest challenges to keep these young boys worthy. Now, while the major responsibility for preaching the gospel has been placed upon the shoulders of the priesthood, there are many young women who will also be granted the privilege of serving as missionaries. They should likewise prepare themselves for the time that they may be called. Parents can play an important part in instilling within their sons and daughters a desire to live worthy so that they can qualify to fill missions. I shall always be grateful for being born of goodly parents who taught their children that this was part of their responsibility. In our home, it was never a question of whether or not we would fill a mission. That was assumed and just taken for granted. It was a matter of when, as a result of this encouragement and hope, all the six sons in the family filled a mission. Now, it's a natural thing for prospective missionaries to have a preference for a certain area in which to labor. That was true in my case. Three of my grandparents were born in England. Here they heard the gospel. Here they were converted and joined the Church. Later, my father filled a missionary a mission there. So when my call came from President Heber J. Grant, it was to the Eastern States and not to England. Momentarily, I was disappointed. However, I had been taught that missionaries are called by inspiration to labor where the Lord wants them. The words of favorite Tim came to mind, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I was reconciled and satisfied with my mission call. What a tremendous blessing my call to the Eastern States mission has been in my life. The mission was presided over by one of the General Authorities of the Church. Elder B.H. Roberts at that time was Senior President of the First Council of Seventy and a most effective missionary. The Lord blessed me with the privilege of a close association with this great leader and missionary. I gained a deep respect, admiration, and love for him. President Roberts was an earnest scholar, a gifted writer, and an author of many inspirational books explaining the beautiful principles of the gospel. He was a courageous and stalwart defender of the faith. As a dedicated historian, he researched and related in a comprehensive manner the manner, the interesting and important events in the history of the church. President Roberts was a dynamic and popular speaker, and his services were in constant demand. He was a most forceful and influential speaker. Numerous times he stood at this pulpit and thrilled and inspired the members of the Church. I shall always recall with gratitude my opportunity of serving under this inspired leader. President Roberts firmly believed and taught his missionaries that in order for them to be successful and effective, they must seek for and obtain the Spirit of the Lord, to direct and lead them in teaching their teaching efforts. He emphasized the words of the Lord, who said, And the Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. And if ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. President Roberts set his missionaries an excellent example by constantly seeking, earnestly seeking, for the Spirit of the Lord to guide and direct them. He did that himself. Now, we held a daily devotional exercises in the mission home. When it was President Roberts' turn to lead in prayer, he would pour out his soul in gratitude and supplication. As he prayed, the veil would become thin, and we could feel through the Spirit the nearness of the Lord. From his knowledge of the scriptures, President Roberts had selected and adopted a slogan for the mission. That slogan was just one word. Emmanuel. Isaiah, in foretelling the birth of the Savior, foretold, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Centuries later, Matthew, an apostle of the Christ, explained the meaning of the name Emmanuel when he recorded Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. President Roberts used the slogan Emmanuel constantly in his discourses, in his correspondence, on autographing books, photos on numerous other occasions. To have God with us his Holy Spirit should be the aim of every missionary. It should likewise be the aim of every every individual. To have the companionship of the Holy Spirit requires a person to keep his mind and his body clean, as the Holy Spirit is sensitive and will not dwell in an unclean tabernacle. A young man who had gained a reputation for speaking He had a great speaking ability, had allowed this praise to go to his head, he became slightly arrogant. He had been invited to speak in his ward sacrament meeting. As the meeting proceeded, it was announced that he would be the next speaker. As he walked to the pulpit, overly self-confident and with no evidence of humility, the bishop leaned over and whispered to his counselor. What a pathetic and lonely figure he is standing out there all alone. As the resurrected Savior met on a mountain near Galilee with his apostles for the last time before ascending into heaven, he assured them that although he would return, that through his spirit he would never leave them when he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Yes, every young man should fill a mission. That should be his aim, his goal, his sincere desire. Whether to go on a mission or not will be one of the most important and far-reaching decisions that he will make in this life. It is my prayer that every young man may prepare himself to accept the mission call, for which I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Tonight I desire to give a challenge to every officer of the Church who has an Aaronic Priesthood responsibility. This includes every deacon, teacher, and priest, as well as adult leaders. Let us share a vision of what the Aaronic Priesthood can become and then join together in a great continuing effort to make that vision a reality. It should also be said that the principles I speak of apply to our young women. We must not ignore or underestimate them in building this generation of youth. Brethren, sometimes ironic Priesthood work is misdirected. Sometimes when leaders see young men losing interest in the Church, they redouble their attempts to devise major events week after week, including super activities, teenage parties, and visits to exo- exotic places hoping thereby to compete with school activities, clubs, or television for the attention of our youth. They may let the priests and teachers play basketball every activity night for lack of other alternatives or because that is what some youth say they prefer. These leaders, lacking vision, do not ask youth to give of themselves or inconvenience themselves for fear of losing them. Entertaining activities are what our young people want some leaders seem to think, and we have to give them what they want if we are going to keep them active. Even though young people may attend such activities for a time, they experience no conversion through them, often consider it no special honor to hold a priesthood, and then move into adulthood immature and poorly prepared for service to Church and mankind. Although there's nothing inherently wrong with athletics, super-activities, or parties, a self-serving diet of entertainment fails because it aims in the wrong direction. Instead of setting out to accomplish the work of the ministry which the Lord has assigned to the Iranic priesthood quorums, this approach largely ignores service and personal sacrifice and seeks to compete in a worldly way for the attention of our youth. When this happens, The youth may begin to think that the Church exists to indulge their whims and wishes and that they should evaluate the Church by the yardstick of self-indulgence. And if they think this way, they may find the world's enticements more daring and exciting than any we can properly provide. Then, because we have imitated the world, we lose them to the world. There is a far better approach. We must focus on the priesthood quorum and how it accomplishes the work the Lord has given it. The quorum then makes a vital contribution to the exaltation of its members. When an Aaronic priesthood leader takes the work of the quorum seriously, he is not afraid to call upon quorum members to inconvenience themselves or and sacrifice. When these members experience the sweetness and the joy of self-sacrifice, which the world at best can only partially give, They begin to regard the priesthood with solemnity, appreciation, and respect. May I reiterate this? If doing the work of the priesthood is the aim of an Aaronic Priesthood Quorum, its members will become active and remain active. Members invariably lose interest if the quorum presidency or adult leadership ignores the work of the the Lord and attempts to devise entertainment programs to entice activity. It is a law of life. Only if you sacrifice for a cause will you love it. Each of us knows this from experience. Frequently priests who have been frivolous and immature before their missions rapidly grow up after a few difficult months in the mission field. Testimony, purpose, and peace of mind replace lack of direction, confusion, and apathy. The explanation is simple. They learn to sacrifice for a lofty cause. Brethren, Aaronic priesthood holders should not have to wait for the mission field before experiencing the joy of sacrifice associated with service to God and mankind. They should not have to wait until they reach the age of 19 before having cause to love and even defend the priesthood. Our young men do not want to be indulged with entertainment. Talk with them. They will tell you this. They would rather hold a cottage meeting where their friends learn about the gospel than go to the movies. They would rather stage a birthday party for an invalid child than play rowdy games in the cultural hall. They would rather plan and carry out a quorum camp out in order to get close to an inactive quorum member than to be taken camping by adults who furnish the finest gear free of charge and cook all their meals for them. I'm not suggesting that we should have all service projects and no recreation. In the great tradition of the Church, there must continue to be recreation and social and cultural enjoyment. What I am saying is that there can and should be a balance and a blending of service and recreation. Every activity, even an activity of games, can be planned to help build people, if only those participating. Every activity, even a project in which physical work is done, can be great fun. Spiritual experiences can be be built into everything we do. This alone would eliminate poor sportsmanship on the athletic field. I recently reviewed the program of a stake youth conference. The youth leaders themselves chose the program. The topics were getting to know yourself, getting to know God, genealogy and how to use the stake library, self-discipline and overcoming temptation and temper, parent-youth relations. Dance workshops, swing and foxtrot, budgeting your money, how to get a date, successful job interviews, youth leadership training, preparing and storing food and bread making, and finally, women, their role and place in society today. This list alone reflects some truths about our youth, which all too often are not recognized by adults. May we remember that they would rather serve than be served. Self-sacrifice brings out their finest characteristics. It teaches them who they really are. They have a right to discover in the Aaronic Priesthood a genuine genuine alternative to the empty self-concern which motivates many of the people of the world. Let it never be said of an Aaronic Priesthood quorum that its members could not find in it personal fulfillment, growth, and the joy of giving of self as well as fun. Let our quorums be clearly and unequivocally places where the gospel of Jesus Christ is practiced. Never let it become a pale imitation of the world. May I share with you a story of a young man who witnessed firsthand a demonstration of this crucial principle. He wrote the following, quote, at one time I attended a ward which had almost no Melchizedek priesthood holders in it, but it was not in any way dulled in spirituality. On the contrary, many of its members witnessed the greatest display of priesthood power they had ever known. The power was centered in the priests. For the first time in their lives, they were called upon to perform all the duties of the priest and administer to the needs of their fellow ward members. They were seriously called to home teach, not just to be a yawning appendage to an elder making a social call, but to bless their brothers and sisters. Previous to this time, I had been with four of these priests in a different situation. There, I regarded them to be common hoodlums. They drove away every seminary teacher after two or three months. They spread havoc over the countryside on scouting trips. But when they were needed, when they were trusted with a vital mission, they were among those who shone the most brilliantly in priesthood service. The secret was that the bishop called upon his ironic priesthood to rise to the stature of men to whom angels might well appear. And they rose to that stature, administering relief to those who might be in want and strengthening those who needed strengthening. Not only were the other ward members built up, but so were the members of the quorum themselves. A great unity spread throughout the ward, and every member began to have a taste of what it is for a people to be of one mind and one heart. There was nothing nothing inexplicable in all of this. It was just the proper exercise of the Aaronic Priesthood. In the world, many organizations, churches, governments, even families, have lost much of their vitality because they are afraid to ask people to sacrifice. It is imperative that we not make the same mistake in the Aaronic Priesthood. We must be fearless in expecting Aaronic priesthood holders to do the work the Lord, which the Lord has commanded. To accomplish a great work in the Aaronic priesthood, no new program is needed. You have either received or shortly will receive the new Aaronic priesthood handbook. It lo- outlines the simple principles of organization and operation of the Aaronic priesthood given in the scriptures and the teachings of latter-day prophets. Application of these principles will bring about more activity more conversion, and far better missionary preparation among our young men. For a moment, let us contemplate together what young men who hold the Aaronic Priesthood become when leaders at every level zealously apply correct principles as contained in the handbook. Some of you already know what immense good results when a stake president asks for an Aaronic Priesthood accounting from each bishop during the monthly personal priesthood interview. The work accelerates when the stake president, who is the chairman of the stake Aaronic Priesthood Committee, asks bishops about service rendered by Aaronic Priesthood quorums and about progress in the preparation of quorum members for missionary work, temple marriage, and fatherhood. This one event, the monthly personal priesthood interview, changes and reinforces a bishop's concept of his foremost responsibility, the Aaronic Priesthood and the Young Women. Of course, if the stake president fails to hold the personal priesthood interview, or does not, in fact, accept the direction that the bishop's first and foremost responsibility is the Aaronic Priesthood and young women, the bishop will have difficulty in fulfilling his stewardship. Reflect next on the results we see when the members of each bishopric properly supervise the work of the quorum to which they are assigned. When bishops' counselors hold monthly personal priesthood interviews with deacons and teachers' quorum presidents, they motivate and inspire by passing on, through careful inquiry and training, the magnificent vision of ironic priesthood work. Think of what happens when each bishop really serves as president of his priest's quorum and presides at presidency meetings and attends every quorum meeting and activity. Inquire, inquire of others, if necessary, about what happens when his counselors... Likewise, attend all of the functions of the quorums to which they are assigned and get close to each individual young man. There is marked and significant development in Aaronic Priesthood leadership when each quorum advisor spends extra time behind the scenes preparing the president of the quorum to take his proper leadership role. Important things begin to happen when every quorum meeting is preceded by a quorum presidency meeting and every quorum meeting is presided over by the quorum president himself. Now let us think ahead for to what stature our young men will attain when every quorum fills its calendar with activities and projects which alleviate sorrow or suffering, or bring joy into the lives of people in the ward or community, or which enable the quorum to, ma- to watch over its members and prepare them for missionary work. Contemplate how much Aaronic priesthood holders will grow and the Church will be blessed when the quorums carry out all their scriptural responsibilities. For example, when the priests, working as home teachers, exhort families in the Church to pray vocally and in secret and attend all family duties, and when the teachers and deacons also carry out their revealed duties, how much a part of this great great latter-day work our Aaronic priesthood brethren will become. They will realize that a priesthood quorum is a brotherhood of priesthood officers ordained with the right and privilege of using God's power to bring happiness and peace and prosperity into the earth. As all of these things happen, leaders will no longer be tempted to devise programs which imitate the world. We will see that the key to the conversion, the activity, the missionary preparation, and the spiritual growth of our youth is a stake presidency a bishopric, and an Aaronic Priesthood Quorum Presidency, which fearlessly and thoroughly organize themselves to carry out the basic fundamental work of the Aaronic Priesthood as the Lord has outlined it. This is the great work we are called upon to perform in these last days. May we faithfully and vigorously carry it to a glorious conclusion. I bear my witness, my brethren, that the bishops of this Church have a stewardship for the youth of this Church. And the Lord expects us to properly carry out that stewardship. And I have the faith in the bishops of the Church and the stake presidencies that this will be accomplished. And further, I have faith in the Aaronic Priesthood Quorum Presidencies themselves, in the maturity and in the stability and in the depth of their spirituality that they will rise as no other generation has ever risen in their positions of leadership. I bear this witness and leave my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
2: I cannot refrain, my brothers and sisters, from expressing deep gratitude to the marvelous musicians who have sung and played for us during this conference. I have been thrilled with the music, as I seldom have been, in a conference, and just for one I would like to say to all of these singers and the organists how grateful I am to you and that I feel you have made a marvelous contribution to this very exceptional conference. We Latter-day Saints have a message for the world. It is divine and declares to all mankind that God has spoken again from the heavens in these modern times. As the Almighty thus spoke, he said, Hear, O ye heavens, and give ear, O earth, and rejoice, ye inhabitants thereof, for the Lord is God, and beside him there is no Savior. Great is his wisdom, and marvelous are his ways. And then he added, The voice of the Lord is unto all men, and the voice of warning shall be unto all people. The crux of our message is that Jesus of Nazareth is Christ the Lord, the Redeemer of all mankind, the Savior of the Christians, and the Messiah of the Jews. We affirm most solemnly that this same Jesus was the literal begotten Son of God, born of Mary, and that without him there is no Savior. The Almighty repeatedly affirmed that Jesus of Nazareth is his Son, and insistently commanded, Hear ye him. In these last days, as the Almighty gave his great new revelation of Jesus Christ, again came the commandment, Hear ye him. So, as Latter-day Saints, we bring to you a new and modern revelation of Jesus Christ, and in doing so we pass on to all who will listen the urgent command of God the Father, in which he says again, Hear ye him. Our message is true. It is of vital concern to this troubled world. The Lord himself said, Hearken, ye people, from afar, and ye that are upon the islands of the sea, listen together, for verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men. When we thus declare his modern revealed word, there arises immediately in the minds of many people the matter of credibility. This we realize full well, knowing that The credibility of our message rests to a large extent upon the credibility of us as a people. With that in mind, permit me to tell you a little about ourselves. We are a people committed to sobriety and good character, to honesty and righteous living. We teach virtue and chastity as basic cardinal principles of our faith. We advocate the stability and preservation of the home. To us, the family is the cornerstone of civilization and must ever be. It is the foundation of proper human relationships. We teach our men and women fidelity in its loftiest meaning. We believe that each of us is a spirit child of God and that the Lord intends that we shall so live that eventually we may become perfect as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. We believe the family was intended to become an eternal unit, to be projected beyond death and the resurrection into an everlasting and immortal life. It is to prepare ourselves in worthiness for such a destiny that we teach this high standard of fidelity on the part of both husband and wife. We have but one single standard of morality for all, Our constant cry is, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. We are a fast-growing people. Honest-hearted men and women respond as they hear our message. We now have a Church membership of three and a half million. Ten years ago it was less than two and a half million. We operate a consistent missionary program. We now have 133 missions with congregations in 62 different nations. Ten years ago we had only 74 missions. Today we have 21,000 missionaries, mostly young men about 20 years of age. Ten years ago we had only 7,000. These missionaries give their full time, freely and willingly, for a period of two years and they pay all of their own expenses. You may judge from this the sincerity of our convictions. Our congregations generally are divided into what we call branches, wards, and stakes, the branches and wards being somewhat comparable to parishes, the stakes being likened to dioceses. Ten years ago we had about 6,000 wards and branches. Now we have nearly 8,000. Ten years ago, we had 412 stakes, the larger units. Now we have over 700. They are found in nations from South America to Scandinavia and from Alaska to South Africa to Australia and to the islands of the South Seas. We are generally a healthy people. Dr. James E. Enstrom of the UCLA School of Public Health reported in the Pasadena Star News last April 9th that the incidence of cancer among the Mormons is 50% lower than the national average. In Utah, the cancer death rate is the lowest in America. With respect to lung cancer, Latter-day Saint women have only 31% of the national average, the men only 38% of the national average. For cancer of the esophagus related to alcohol usage, The figure for Latter day Saints is only 11% of the national average for women and 34% for men. These figures are provided by Dr. Joseph F. Lyon, Director of the Utah Cancer Registry. The Statistical Abstract of the United States for the year 1971, Bureau of Census, reports some interesting figures in which Utah and the rest of the nation are compared. All states in the Union are listed according to frequency of incidence of the diseases which I shall mention, with the states placed lowest on the list having the least number of cases. For diseases of the heart, Utah ranks in 46th place. For influenza and pneumonia, 49th place. For cerebrovascular diseases, 46th place. Arteriosclerosis. 49th place, cirrhosis of the liver, 45th place, bronchitis, emphysema, and asthma, 30th place, tuberculosis, 50th place, venereal diseases, 50th place, major cardiovascular and renal diseases combined, 50th place, diseases of the cardiovascular system, 50th place, vascular lesions affecting the nervous system, 50th place, hypertensive heart disease, 43rd place, other hypertensive disease, 50th place, infectious diseases, 50th place, complications of pregnancy, 46th place, infant mortality, 50th place. When speaking of these figures for the state of Utah, it should be kept in mind that about 30% of the total population do not belong to our Church, but they are included in the Utah State statistics. Our Church has been a leader in promoting youth development through the Boy Scout program, which we feel is a very effective organization for the training of boys of all nations, creeds, and peoples. In the United States as a whole, Only 23% of the available boys of scout age are actually registered as scouts, but among the Latter-day Saints the percentage is 85. In the United States, 1.5% of registered scouts obtain their Eagle Award. Among the Latter-day Saints, it is 4%. In 1974, our Church, as a sponsoring unit for scouting, ranked second in the United States with a number of sponsored units. We were exceeded only by the Parent Teachers Association. They sponsored 20,800 units. We sponsored 14,344 units. Following us came the United Methodist Church with 13,789 and the Roman Catholic Church with 11,734 units. In this day of juvenile delinquency, we are greatly heartened by the fact that of the 256,000 teenage boys in our Church, 70% are actively associated with the Church, and of the 238,000 girls of comparable age, 73% are actively associated with the Church. Can you match this anywhere? Think of it—a half million teenage boys and girls devoted to a Church which prohibits liquor, tobacco, and premarital sex. Try if you can to duplicate that anywhere. You will be interested in our Sunday school attendance. Fifty-nine percent of all of our little children are in Sunday school every Sunday, and of the teenage group, every Sunday, 60 percent of all Latter-day Saint youth are actually present in their classes. In our Church, we teach that the glory of God is intelligence. We believe also that the glory of man is likewise intelligence. With this in mind, we are strong advocates of education. When Dr. Clark Kerr, chairman of the Carnegie Council on Policy Studies in Higher Education, addressed the commencement exercise of the University of Utah last year, he said this interesting thing. Utah stands first in the nation in the total population, ages 3 to 34, enrolled in school. Utah stands first in the percentage of the total population enrolled in school at every age level except ages 16 and 17, where Minnesota ranks first. Utah stands first in the average years of school completed for all citizens aged 25 and older. Utah stands first in expenditures on the operating programs of medical schools per $100,000 of personal income in the state. And then he said this. The Carnegie Commission on Higher Education surveyed the performance of higher education in each of the 50 states. It found Utah, unlike many states, to have no major deficiencies. Remarkable, isn't it? Then he asked, Why has Utah done so well? It is neither the richest, nor the oldest, nor the best located state for educational development. If one could find its secret, perhaps it could be exported elsewhere. But this is not easy, for its secret, I think, is its history. Your early leaders placed a great emphasis on education and he then quoted Brigham Young on his advocacy of education. This educational background is reflected in the number of our people who have reached places of prominence in the United States, Canada, and the world. Mark W. Cannon, in a discussion entitled Mormons in the Executive Suite, said that a recent study shows that among the 471 leading business institutions of America— More of their presidents were born in Utah in relation to its population than in any other state of the Union. Utah produced one such president for each 62,000 persons of population, compared to one for each 205,000 nationally. Currently 55 Latter-day Saint men are holding positions as either president, chairman of the board, or vice chairman of the board for American companies listing assets of more than $10 million. 77 hold major positions in corporations with assets exceeding $75 million. Latter-day Saints have filled cabinet positions in the United States and other important positions in Canada. We have our generals and our admirals in the military forces. Our people have served regularly in the U.S. Congress over the years as well as in governing bodies in Canada. For example, in 1952, there were 15 Latter-day Saints holding seats in the United States Senate and House. Now there are 28. Latter-day Saints have served likewise in important positions on the Federal Reserve Board, the U.S. Customs Court, U.S. Tariff Commission, and in federal housing positions. Dr. Harvey Fletcher, a Mormon high priest, developed stereophonic sound. Another Mormon, Philo Farnsworth, developed television. Mormons have been world presidents of Rotary International and Lions International. They have headed the American Medical Association, the American Bankers Association, and various scientific societies. Also, they have held many other positions of importance in scientific research, business, and finance, too many to mention at this time. Many people today are interested in the so-called movement for the liberation of women. You will be pleased to know that Mormon women were the first women anywhere to receive the franchise to vote. They were given this important right in the days of Brigham Young more than a hundred years ago. We believe that Mormon women are less circumscribed and are possessed of greater liberty than any women in the world. They understand the true meaning of liberty and justice for all because it is part of their religion and is fundamental in their daily routine. We have in our Church an organization especially for women, operated and directed by the women themselves. It is known as the Women's Relief Society. It has nearly a million members. Leaders of this organization have served prominently in both the United States and the World Councils of Women and one of them, Mrs. Bell S. Spafford, recently served as president of the National Council of Women in the United States. The purpose of this Relief Society organization is to provide compassionate service for those in need, but it also promotes the cultural development of the women, helping them to achieve their desired goals in life and to establish high ideals in the family circle. As part of our message, we bring to the world a new and additional volume of scripture known as the Book of Mormon. We publish more than a million copies of this book every year. It is a sacred history of ancient America. As we speak of the Book of Mormon, we are sometimes asked if we use the Bible. Of course we do. We use the Bible as most other Christians do. We accept it as one of our standard works. But we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God, providing a second witness to Christ and his work in these latter days. We believe in modern revelation and announce to all mankind that God has raised up new prophets who give voice to modern revelations for the guidance of mankind. Our message is solemn. Our message is true. Our people are substantial citizens—law-abiding, intelligent, and progressive, as all who know us will agree. Our pattern of life, as you can see, gives adequate and ample credibility to the divinity of our mission and our message. It is out of a background such as I have described that we do issue our great religious message to the world. In this day of darkness, sin, and confusion, would you not welcome a new revelation from God, reaffirming his existence, showing anew the way to salvation and providing a beacon as a light upon a hill? We testify that God does live. He is the creator of the world. We testify that Jesus Christ lives and that he is the redeemer of this world. And we unitedly give voice to God's commandment with respect to the Christ. Hear ye him. There is salvation in and through him alone. And to this we testify in his holy name. Amen. Amen.